Today's scenecast is brought to you by It's All Your Fault, a new podcast from the scene about the Nashville Predators. The show features David Beauclair and Megan Sealing talking about all things Preds. Beauclair has covered the team for two decades, which gives him as much perspective on the franchise as anyone in Nashville. Sealing was a Predators fan before even moving to Nashville five years ago, keeps a small shrine for Victor Arvidsson, and is personal friends with Peter Laviolette's turtle. That last bit may or may not be true. With one insider and one outsider and a range of guests, they'll follow the team's quest to return to the Stanley Cup Finals. You can subscribe to It's All Your Fault on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn today. Bradley Balco is a Nashville journalist with a book coming out called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, a true story of injustice in the American South. Balco writes and edits The Watch, a Washington Post blog focused on policing and criminal justice. His new book is due out February 27th. I'm Amanda Haggard, a staff writer at the Nashville scene. Uh, Let's start by talking about what brought you to the stories of this medical examiner, Stephen Hayne, and dentist Michael West. Uh, there are so many uh, criminal justice stories out there you could tell. Why this one? Um, well, I guess there are two questions there. Um, the first would be how I came to it. And uh, so about 12 years ago, I was um, writing about a drug raid that happened in Mississippi and a guy named Corey May. Um, the police had um, basically... Uh, broken into the uh both sides of a duplex when they meant to only target one side of the duplex and uh may was home alone and shot and killed one of the raiding police officers and the the, um the medical examiner who did the autopsy and the officer um gave uh some uh interesting testimony at the trial uh he claimed that the trajectory of the bullet to the officer's body was going downward uh whereas Corey may had said that he was shooting up uh when the police came in this was kind of important because may said he didn't know that these were raiding police officers and he had no prior criminal record and so the whole trial kind of turned on his credibility and here it comes this doctor to say well no you know according to my autopsy that it couldn't have happened the way he said so it, it it you know undoubtedly had a pretty profound impact on the jury um as it turns out the trajectory of a bullet through a body can vary depending on uh where the shooter's positioned but also how they're holding the gun and also the position of the uh, victim you know if the victim's crouching uh it can actually change the trajectory pretty dramatically uh and so you know this this medical examiner gave his testimony and sort of allowed you know himself to be a little bit uh, his words to be manipulated by the prosecution in a way that wasn't completely honest with the science or with the facts. And so I started thinking to myself, well, you know, if he's given question, questionable testimony in this case, it's probably happened before. Uh, so I started asking around and, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, defense attorneys around the state knew this guy well. Uh, and they also knew that he had a kind of a sidekick named Michael West, who was this forensic jack of all trades, uh, known mostly as a bite mark analyst, but also uh, claimed to be able to do all sorts of other things. Uh, and so then I started calling medical examiners around the South. And when I would call, uh, I had a couple in Alabama and Georgia, uh, I couldn't even finish my sentence, I would say, I'm a journalist looking into a medical examiner, and they would say, you know, you're talking about Dr. Hayne in Mississippi, right? Uh, 
so I think it was then that I kind of knew I, I had a story. Um, as to sort of why I focus so much on this one or why I spend so much time on this one, I've, you know, I've been sort of pursuing the story for about 10 years and sure. it took us a couple of years to write this book. Um, I think it's just the sheer volume, for one, of, of um, cases that were affected by uh, these two. Uh, Hain testified in about 80% of the autopsies in Mississippi for 20 years. Uh, or excuse me, 80% of the yeah, homicide trials in Mississippi for 20 years. So you know, we're talking um, thousands of cases. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got, you know, cases where, uh, you know, a you know healthy young black teen will die in the back of a police car and the medical examiner will determine that was a stroke or natural causes. Uh, or you'll have a lot of cases just sort of poor people who die of clear homicides and the prosecutor, the local sheriff just wasn't to deal with it. Uh, so you'll get a, um, again, you'll get a natural death or a suicide ruling uh, when the evidence suggests something else. So, you know, we're talking, you know, again, thousands and thousands of cases and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of an, uh, an amazing story in terms of the number of people affected a number of people sort of implicated in the system down there. Um, and then there's also this kind of fascinating history behind it, the history of death investigations, uh, the way the death investigations are carried out in the U.S., uh, and particularly, you know, we focus on Mississippi, but I think it's the, the implications are broader than that. Uh, so just a lot of really interesting things. You've got bad forensics, you've got structural uh, racism, you've got um, uh, the, the sort of death investigations and the corrupt corruptibility of the coroner system all kind of rolled into one. So one thing um, that you look at in the book is, um, you know, the scope in which Hain um, sort of operated. And, you know, he was looking at several more cases than what they recommend that you do in a year. So will you talk about sort of, you know, what they recommend a medical examiner does and sort of what he was able to do um, in Mississippi? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't give you the full scope of it. So um, the National Association of Medical Examiners recommends to do no more than 250 autopsies per year, uh, an individual doctor. Um, if a doctor has more than 325, name, it's, uh, the acronym for the organization, won't uh, certify the lab that that doctor works at, uh, regardless of, of you know other circumstances or factors. Uh, so 250 is the sort of, you know, suggested upper limit 325 is the sort of hard upper limit and you know when you think there are 365 days a year uh each autopsy takes four to six hours usually you factor in vacation and weekends and you know that that those numbers kind of make sense um in the early 90s there was a guy in texas named ralph erdman who uh was sort of a freelance uh medical examiner in rural counties in texas that couldn't afford their own and he was sort of exposed in some national media by national some national media stories uh, for doing way too many autopsies. In fact, uh, in their book *Actual Innocence*, uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld uh, say he was doing an astonishing number of autopsies every year. Uh, well, he was doing about 400 per year. Uh, so what we found with Hain is under oath and you know in depositions and and on the witness stand, Hain has admitted doing, uh, for most of his career, about 1,500 autopsies per year. Um, some cases he did 1,800. There were a couple of years when he did over 2,000. Uh, at the same time, he was 
holding down two jobs that were uh, allegedly full-time, uh, one as a medical director at a hospital and one as the head of a, a kidney research lab. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, he was testifying three to five times a week right. in courthouses all over Mississippi um, and, you know, getting paid pretty well to do it. He was also uh, consulting in private cases where he would, you know, do an autopsy and say a medical malpractice case or a wrongful death case. So when you add it all up, they're just you know, there just wasn't time for him to be doing all these autopsies in the way uh, that they should be done. And, you know, we found lots of examples of, you know, sloppiness. There's a case where he, you know, uh, noted the weight of the ovaries uh, in uterus in an infant, and it turned out the infant was male. Uh, there was a case wow. about a, a dead a prisoner that had died in a Mississippi jail where the, uh, I think that he had died of sepsis, which the spleen comes into play in a, a sepsis death, and Hain had carefully noted the weight of the spleen and noted that nothing seemed, you know, particularly abnormal about it. Uh, well, the guy's spleen had been removed uh, several years before the autopsy, uh, so it was that kind of thing. And then you find, you know, you, you find that stuff, and then you combine that with the, you know, scientifically dubious testimony that he was giving in some of these trials, and you wonder, sort of, you know, just how much how much damage was done down there. So in particular, in your book, you're looking at two um, cases, uh, LaVon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer, uh, mm-hmm. who both spent just an incredible amount of time in, in prison on, on wrongful convictions. Um, so, you know, talk a little bit about why you zeroed in on those two cases and, um, you know, how you, um, you know, sort of looked at those two narratives within this broader um, issue. Sure. Well, I think uh, the Levon Brooks and Kennedy Brewer cases. Well, first they were the f- the first DNA exonerations uh, in Mississippi, I believe. Um, they came in two thousand seven, I think two thousand seven or two thousand eight. Um, they so as you said, Levon and and Kennedy were both uh, convicted uh, for very r- remarkably similar crimes in the early nineties. I think they're about a year and a half apart, uh, and they were both in Knoxville County, uh, and in both cases, it was a, a, a little girl that was raped and murdered. Uh, and that just didn't happen very often in Knoxville County. Uh, for it to happen twice in such a short span, uh, and to two girls who really lived, I think they lived just a few miles apart, uh, was pretty remarkable. And it, you know, it should have made law enforcement officials there think that maybe, you know, the same person did it. Uh, unfortunately, by the time the second murder had happened, happened they had already... Uh, convicted someone of the first, and so LeVon Brooks gets convicted first, uh, based on a lot of really dubious evidence. Um, basically, the uh, the girl's sister uh, had allegedly witnessed the kidnapping and, and claimed that she saw a man with a quarter in this year, which you know could really mean anything. Uh, but local authorities took that to mean an earring, and so they basically arrested the only guy in, in the area who wore an earring, and that was LeVon Brooks. Right, and she was really young, right, like five years old. Right. Yeah. She was five when she she saw it um, or allegedly saw it. And, you know, she said a lot of things that didn't make any sense at all. For some reason, they just kind of pulled what they thought they needed and and disregarded the rest. Um, so LeVon gets sort of is becomes the main suspect. Um, they bring in Hayne, who does the autopsy. Uh, he finds marks on the girl that he claims are bite marks or could be bite human bite marks. Uh they were probably just bug bites, according to several medical examiners who have subsequently looked at uh, the evidence. 
Uh, but then he calls in Michael West, his sort of sidekick and the bite mark guy. And West, uh, you know, had this uncanny knack of finding bite marks that nobody else could see uh, and then matching them to whoever local authorities thought was the chief suspect in the case. Uh, and so this, in this case, it was LaVon Brooks. Uh, so LaVon gets convicted, uh, sentenced to life uh, in prison. And then this other murder happens just a short time later. At this point, LaVon's already behind bars. Uh, so, you know, the police, uh, again, get their, their sort of short list of suspects. Uh, and this time, again, they focus on Kennedy Brewer, who, uh, like LaVon, happened to be the boyfriend of the mother of the victim. Uh, again, they bring in Hain. Again, he claims to find bite marks. Again, he brings in West. Again, West ma- matches the bite marks to the chief suspect. Kennedy gets convicted, uh, and he gets actually sentenced to death. Um, the guy who actually committed both crimes uh, was a guy named Justin Johnson, uh, and he was actually a suspect in both cases. Uh, but once the local authorities sort of latched on to someone else, uh, Hayne and West came in and sort of confirmed their suspicions. Uh, and at that point, there was really no hope to find the person who actually did it. Uh, and this is really, I mean, uh, this is kind of gets to the the flip side of these wrongful convictions. Um, you know, there are, I, I think this is really wrongheaded, but there are people out there who think, well, you know, if you get wrongly convicted of a crime, maybe you didn't commit that crime, but you probably did something, you know, or you deserve to be behind bars and that, you know, that's usually wrong. Um, but you know, even right. if you buy that, uh, even if you buy into that, uh, you know, if you convict the wrong person, then the person who actually did it continues to go free and they commit more crimes. Uh, this isn't the only case where these two, uh, have led local authorities to apprehend the wrong person. Uh, and in which case the, the, the actual killer went on to kill again. Uh, so they actually, you know, did cost lives in addition to uh, wrongful convictions. The, the main reason sort of why we picked these two cases, I think, is, is you know, they were the first exonerations, but also they they happened in the early 90s. They were exonerated in um, 2007, 2008, uh, somewhere in there. Um, I should actually know this, uh, but I don't have the book in front of me. Um, but they sort, of, they sort of spanned Hain and West's tenure in Mississippi, so they became good uh, narrative devices because, you know, they, there were appeals throughout this and through those appeals, we can sort of explore how the courts let all this happen in Mississippi uh, and how they were sort of compliant in uh, letting this, uh, you know, easily corruptible system sort of dominate down there for so long. Uh, so they, yeah, uh, they were just uh, two cases that really kind of stood out as as ideal to tell the story. Sure. And I think, you know, one thing is over the past, I think you said, you know, decade or more, this bite mark analysis has also been called into question and sort of debunked. So do you mind to right. talk a little bit about that? Just sort of, you know, how sure. um, things have changed? <laughs> well, the book does kind of span a period where we see forensics in general um, kind of become, uh, particularly these, these, these pattern matching fields of forensics, which bite mark evidence is included in this, it also put hair fiber matching, tire tread matching, shoe print matching, uh, tool mark matching. These are all fields of forensics where basically there's no there's no real science to it. It's basically they're they're, they're entirely subjective. It's basically a forensic analyst looks at um, you know a, a a pattern created by um, you know a piece of evidence that they think was involved in the crime. 
and then they look at the pattern that they find at the actual crime scene and they look and see if they're a match. So, you know, we look at it, we look at the tread from the suspect's car with the tread left at the crime scene, or we look at the uh, the marks that a suspect's teeth make in a clay dental mold and compare it to the marks we find on a you know on a body. Um, and there's no, you know, in these these are fields of forensics, unlike say DNA, where you have probabilities, clear probabilities that you can calculate. You have uh, margin for error that you can calculate. Um, these don't have any of those things. Um, there's no uh, bite mark analysts don't take proficiency tests, uh, to see if they, you know, you know, you would think if you're in a field where you're supposed to match, you know, A to B, um, you would take tests that show that you are, you know, capable of matching A to B and they don't do that. Um, we're just supposed to sort of rely on their word. Uh, and so we see the, the rise of this kind of forensics, um, in the 80s, 90s, really in the, in the 90s after the uh, series of Supreme Court decisions called the Daubert cases uh, really opened the door to, to, to this kind of forensics. Um, and we see a rise in crime and there's sort of a search for, you know, tools to make it easier to put people behind bars. And, and this is one way to do that. Um, and then we see in the 2000s kind of the pushback. We see DNA uh, testing really uh, kind of comes into its own. We get more advanced DNA testing. We start seeing these exonerations. Um, I think there have been uh, well over 300 now. I think we're around 350 uh, DNA exonerations. Um, and we see that, you know, these fields of forensics aren't foolproof. And in fact, um, we discovered that, or it sort of becomes clear that they've never really been subjected to the scientific method. Uh, they've never been rigorously tested. They've never been subjected to sort of blind testing or peer review. And so the field of science sort of catches up and starts looking into some of this. And, you know, what we've seen since is that every scientific body that has reviewed these pattern matching uh, areas of forensics has found that there's really no science to back them up. Uh, and so if you look at bite mark matching in particular, you know, there are two, two claims that bite mark matching that are at the, get to the heart of bite mark matching. One is that all human dentition is unique, that your bite, the, you know, the marks that your teeth leave in an apple or, uh, you know, human skin um, are unique to you and, and, and nobody else could create the same, same set of marks. Um, there's no science to back that up. There's been, there are no databases of human bites to sort of say that. Uh, it's just a claim that's been made that's nobody, nobody's been able to sort of prove. Um, the, the, the second main contention of bimer matching is that human skin itself is capable of preserving that uniqueness in a way that's, you know, usable in court that, that, that says, you know, it, it can preserve those unique characteristics that make a bite mark identifiable to one person to the exclusion of everyone else. Um, human skin doesn't record bites that way. Human skin is soft. It's fungible. Uh, it decays. It, uh, you know, if you're, there are, a multitude of variables that that would need to be you know factored into any sort of uh, matching, such as you know was the person who was being bitten moving away as they were being bitten. So there's some dragging going on with the teeth across the the, the skin. Uh, in these two cases, the little girls who were who were attacked were left um, uh, in a creek uh, or in water, basically uh, one in in uh, somewhat cold weather, one in warm weather. Uh, you know they were bitten by bugs, uh, you know, there's so many different factors that, that can go into 
uh, you know, there's healing. Your body tries to start healing a bite mark almost immediately, and people heal differently. So that's going to leave different marks. Uh, none of these things are really um, accounted for in any sort of tangible way. Um, unfortunately, what's happened is you have, you know, scientists finally sort of gotten involved and debunked some of these areas of forensics, um, but the courts uh, have, had already let them in. And where science is sort of a, a process where we're gradually accumulating knowledge over a, a long period of time, the criminal justice system doesn't really operate like that. The criminal justice system, you know, once there's a guilty verdict, uh, it puts a, pref a very, very strong preference on preserving that verdict, uh, sort of the, of the finality of the verdict. And the idea is you need to protect the integrity of the system if, if you're constantly overturning verdicts um, and people start to question their validity. Uh, and, you know, so the criminal justice system, you know, we have science as it was about collaboration and, and revising theories, and it's constantly sort of changing. Uh, the criminal justice system is about deadlines and it's about, um, you know, um, uh, certainty and about finality and about precedent. And so remarkably, you know, despite the fact that every scientific body to look at bite mark evidence at this point has found there's no scientific uh, research to sort of back up its main contentions. And despite the fact that we've had uh, well over two dozen people now who were either arrested or, or convicted based on bite mark evidence who have since been exonerated, to date, not a single court in America uh, has upheld a challenge to the validity of bite mark evidence. Every time it's been challenged, um, the, 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 the court has let it in as evidence. Uh, so it's really kind of remarkable just how far the courts are uh, from science uh, when it comes to forensics. Um, one, one thing you have to remember, I mean, DNA was developed in a in the scientific community, uh, and that's why it's so sort of authoritative. These fields of forensics were developed in police labs and crime labs, and they were developed with a very specific purpose, which was to help police and right. prosecutors solve crimes. Uh, they weren't developed necessarily to sort of accumulate knowledge or to help us, you know, learn new things. They, they were a tool. They were a means to an end. So one last thing I want to ask you about is it sort of seems like the field of medical examiners is sort of just like ripe with odd characters. I mean, you've got Hain, you've got this other guy in Texas, you know, Tennessee. We've got mm -hmm. Bruce Levy, the state medical examiner who, you know, was caught getting like a pound of pot sent to his hotel room. Um, you know, do you have sort of any insight into why this uh, field seems to attract sort of uh, odd people. Yeah, well, I mean, Tennessee has a really colorful history. You, you've got Dr. Levy, who actually is, is back practicing now, from what oh, I understand, wow. um, and is, is pretty well regarded despite that that unfortunate sidetrack in his career. Um, but, you know, the former uh, state medical examiner in Tennessee, uh, you know, was, I believe, indicted, uh, at least stripped of the medical license. Uh, and then you had a, a medical examiner in um, Shelby County who made national news when he strapped a uh, or made a, strapped a fake bomb to his chest and claimed that he had been kidnapped and was being sort of manipulated by uh, the person who had the trigger to the bomb. Um, so yeah, Tennessee has this long and bizarre, colorful history of medical examiners. But oh, you're right. I think over over the course of the country, I mean, one one thing that we found in the book is you know you would, Hain was frequently criticized by other by his colleagues, by other people in forensic pathology. 
Um, but a lot of them would later go on to have their own problems, uh, which you know made it sort of more difficult to make the case against them over the years in sure. Mississippi. Um, and you know, when you look at medical forensic pathology as a field, you know, people go to medical medical school to save lives, to work with the living. Uh, medical examiners work with the dead. Uh, they, you know, I, I I think they do save lives in the sense that they, you know, help us solve crimes, but they also, um, you know, uh, contribute to sort of public health statistics, so we know, you know, what things to be looking out for and what illnesses are on the rise and so forth. Um, but again, they are working with the dead, and that, I think that takes um, probably a certain somewhat quirky personality type. Uh, on top of that, uh, they tend to make a lot less money than uh, other medical professions because they most uh, forensic pathologist jobs are for state and local government, uh, so they tend to pay less. Um, it's not a particularly rewarding job in a lot of the country, and this is particularly true in Mississippi, where state medical examiners constantly just butting heads with um, you know coroners and prosecutors and a lot of other people. Um, and so it's, you know, uh, I think the job has got gained a little more prestige in recent years because of, um, you know, CSI type shows, which have their own problems, but they have at least sort of um, returned some or, or added some prestige to that job. Uh, Quincy was kind of the first big medical examiner breakthrough show, uh, but it's still, you know, it is still a very quirky profession. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think the problems with the field of, of forensic pathology tend to be more, you know, I, I'm not sure it's so much that it's filled with a lot of oddballs. I think it's more kind of structural. I think the problem is when you have medical examiners who report to prosecutors or report to police agencies, um, there's a lot of uh, subtle buy or subtle uh, incentives to sort of that creep into the work and bias their work one way or the other. I think there's uh, a lot of incentives. There are a lot of incentives to uh, see themselves as sort of the prosecution's team as opposed to a, a neutral, you know, sort of finder of fact. Uh, and, you know, in Mississippi, for example, the way they did it was if there's a suspicious death, uh, the prosecutor in the coroner would send the body to a private forensic pathologist for autopsy. And the problem with that is the prosecutor really, you know, needs them to come up with a certain conclusion or certain diagnosis in order to get a conviction. Uh, and the prosecutor maybe, you know, it's a little bit power hungry or tunnel visioned and the doctor says, well, no, that's not how it happened. Or they say more likely, you know, there's just not enough evidence for me to say that's how it happened. Um, they may not get the next referral. Um, and so you had a system down there and not just in Mississippi, um, Louisiana, a lot of other states had a similar system. Some still do uh, that kind of selects for a doctor that's going to be a little more pliable to prosecutors. Um, and you don't really have to have any bad actors in that system for that, that, evolution toward a sort of more compliant doctor to happen. Um, if you do have people who are sort of willing to, um, uh, you know, kind of negotiate their diagnosis, it happens a lot quicker. Uh, but, you know, the end result is is not um, an accurate diagnosis. It's not, you know, accurate information at trials. And so the end result isn't, you know, justice. It's, uh, it's a, a kind of a warped or rigged system. All right. Well, the, the book is called The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist, A True Story of Injustice in the American South. When does it come out? Uh, February 27th. All right. Well, uh, thanks for talking to us, Radley. I appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.